Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. Now, Jason had all this extra time to prepare the intro, so it's going to be that much better now. Let's see if I remember how to do this. Hello, internets, and welcome to Polycast, episode 314. I'm one of your hosts. I'm one of your hosts, Mega Bears fan, along with fellow hosts, Dan Q. It is Polycast. Welcome. Also, I'm married now. Details to follow. The me and team. Also coasting, now with functional internet. At least more so than last time. And Makalua. ETS Harry, uh, in the live stream, just wants to thank us for the awesome show. Shout out to you. I mean, we assume you're talking about this show, seeing as how you're in the live stream. You didn't actually name the show, but I'm going to infer that you're talking about us. And seeing as how you want to get back into Civ ASAP, I figure there's a connection there, so I'm just going to run with it. That's what we need, Dan. We need uh, bots that can pass the Turing test just hanging out in our chat. (laughs) <laughs> compliment us and then talk to other people <laughs> for all you know i'm a bot that's passing the turing test that would be i'm very impressed Well, we have something in the news to get us started. On the 19th of July, surprise! I don't know which is the bigger surprise here. Okay, yes, we do know what the bigger surprise here, even though it's not what's being talked about mostly. Surprise! (laughs) (laughs) How's that for an introduction? Cross-platform multiplayer functionality for PC and Mac for Civilization VI. Linux to follow in the next few weeks, according to Aspire Media, the company behind the Mac and Linux port for Civilization VI. Oh, and by the way, under miscellaneous, remove Redshell. According to David Hinkle, 2K community manager who posted this announcement on Steam, Firaxis Games and 2K are committed to making Civilization VI the best experience possible and will continue to support the title, quote-unquote. Not that there was any doubt about any of those things, just perhaps necessarily the interpretation of those things. Redshell. We've talked about Redshell before on this show. Not going to go back into the specifics of that, other than to say that it was analytic software that had been added to Civilization VI in February of this year in a patch just before the release of the first Civ VI expansion, Rise and Fall, without player knowledge of it being installed, without player knowledge of what it was doing and what information it was gathering and sending to 2K without user consent, which was the major basis for concern, along with the fact that you couldn't disable that functionality even if you realized it was in there without also disabling the functioning of the game. On Steam, Ditters von Dittersdorf, they said, why nothing new? And Siv Lova on CFC said, that's it, question mark. It's probably the shortest patch notes I've ever seen, but still, if you're not into multiplayer, the fact that there is cross-platform capability, we don't know how functional it is at this point. But the fact that it is here and we heard absolutely nothing about that other than it's coming soon since the game was first released in November of 2016 is a pleasant surprise. Although given the fact that it has been so long in coming, single player is the vast majority of play for Civ 6 and the month-long plus controversy over Redshell's inclusion in Civilization 6, although not only in Civilization 6, certainly has those three words removed Redshell taking up the majority of the feedback for this patch. 
which may or may not be the only patch. Some people are speculating this is the summer patch. They did not label it as the summer patch. It may end up being the summer patch, but certainly this is the first patch in the North American summer for the game. Other comments, most of them were either negative or it's not good enough for Axis, but I managed to find a couple of positive comments on Steam from uh, Freddie Mills. I love you, Firaxis. Please continue to update and improve Civilization VI. You've created what is, in my opinion, what is one of the greatest video games of all time. Thank you for supporting the fans and improving your game. On CFC, Leatherface says, I'm delighted Red Shell is gone, though it didn't deter me from playing more Civ, lol. And also on Steam, Leus says, I approve of this message. There's no question that the civilization community that was aware of Red Shell, because that was also, I don't know, every initial fifth or sixth comment was, I'm sorry, what's Red Shell? Which kind of goes to the argument for its removal, which was a lot of players didn't even realize it was there still, despite all of the comments and controversy and criticism within the community, both in terms of how it was added to the game without consent, and there's even criticism that is resulting from the timing and nature of this removal. Says uh, Imperfecto, Though it's good that you've now removed Red Shell, the effect in doing so was too little too late. You were silent for far too long, completely ignored a lengthy outburst from those who have supported the franchise, and ultimately don't even have the decency to issue an apology to those affected. The damage is already done, and personally I'm not particularly interested in any future products or developments from 2K, Firaxis, or Aspire due to their association with you. Good luck with your mostly negative reviews. I suspect that won't be changing for a long time to come. Gotta love the Steam stuff. <laughs> I mean, I was not impressed by Firaxis's behavior here, but it's nothing new under the sun. Unfortunately, it's not that uncommon, and it would be more unusual to see not practices like this. That said, it's still grimy and crappy that it, they handled their implementation of it this way. So I'm not really giving them a pass, but if you want to keep playing games, then I don't know. It would uh, be nice if we could somehow simultaneously get everybody to stop it, but I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know what a world that has that happen looks like. I don't know if a month is really all that long, though. I mean, after seeing how long it took EA to take care of like the loot box <laughs> stuff in Star Wars Battlefront <laughs> and same thing with WB and Shadow of uh, War, which they finally just removed the loot boxes from that game unceremoniously, completely rebalanced the game and basically admitted, oh, yeah, they kind of ruined the balance of the game completely and its artistic integrity and all that. And that was like six months, eight months later. That game came out like last October. Is EA really the bar we're going for here, though? No, but I'm just saying it could have been far worse. I mean, people are making it sound like a month is forever and it's far from forever. In the cycle of them having to go back to their publisher and get that approved and then actually take it out and all that, a month is actually not that long. Yeah, I highly doubt that this was a decision that putting this in to begin with was a decision that was made by Firaxis. I would be like 90% confident that this was a business decision from 2K. Probably. And having to go to 2K and get the approval from them, and then probably they had to work out some contract thing with the company that runs Red Shell because they were probably on some kind of contract. I'm sure it was more complicated than simply changing a value in the code somewhere or removing a DLL. So I personally feel like a month is actually a pretty quick turnaround time for something like that. <laughs> Not that I'm giving them a free pass either. Like, again, it shouldn't have been there to begin with, at least not without user knowledge and consent. But it could have been a six months, and I would not have been surprised. Yeah. We're not happy it was in there in the first place, but at least they reacted quickly when everybody started going, hey. Yes, relatively quickly. Yeah. And about as quick as you could probably expect something like that to happen in this industry. 
if it were like a little indie developer, I mean, yeah, sure, they can flip a switch and turn something like that off in a day or two. But you're talking about a major publisher, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. I think this is one of those instances where the notion of any publicity is good publicity well. does not apply. <laughs> no. Uh, now, a couple of other random things that came up from the uh, Steam discussion. First off, Gloomseeker wants to know, is the artificial intelligence still brain dead? <laughs> well, in order to be brain dead, they would have had to have a brain to begin with, so I'm not really certain your question's valid. It's not brain uh-huh. alive, though. Jokes we'll tell you that. Aha, <laughs> uh-huh. joke's on you. Red Shell was going to improve the AI, and you've ruined it. Uh, <laughs> sure. Well, yeah, because Red Shell was sending data back to 2K on how we were playing the game, and then they were going to be able to have these fancy-dancy algorithms that the AI was going to be able to then take that data and, on the fly... Change how they were playing. Yep, yep. Now look what we've done. Doesn't the game itself have some of that going on? I would imagine so. Independent of Red Shell, like, like oh yeah, stuff all you're picking in game. All games have to be doing that at this point. I can't imagine any game not doing it. Yeah. Again, unless it's coming from like a little indie developer where it's like one dude working out of his basement or office. And he can get faster responses just from the forums. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We've got like twelve people playing the game, right, and they're all on a forum somewhere. Or friggin' sending text messages back and forth. Although I will point out that both the model that Firaxis uses and the model that you're describing seem to create a disconnect between the developers and the reality of the game state in terms of what's actually strong or not. Because <laughs> I actually watched this happen in uh, RimWorld recently, where like the developers' evaluation of what were the strongest strategies to beat raids and survive on the highest difficulties was not consistent with reality. Like, <laughs> objectively so. You cannot tell me that a strategy that takes less resources, less tech, and less everything to implement except for user input is actually weaker. There's no way. No way. And from uh, Gurney's pug, (laughs) Dear Firaxis, it's not called PC, it's called Windows. Macs are PCs. PCs can run a variety of operating systems, including Windows, Mac OS, and Linux. Please stop naming things incorrectly. Because the patch notes say PC users will require version this and Mac users will require version that. And I'm like, I hear what you're saying, but I think a lot of times in context, we just kind of read it as Windows. I just thought it was amusing that that's what they were picking up on. Or maybe they just wanted to throw something out there, which, well, technically true. Just it kind of brought a smile to my face. Didn't Apple spend like an entire like decade where it's marketing? Campaign I'm a PC to- and I'm a Mac. Yeah was differentiating itself from PC. So if anything, that's the hole that Apple kind of dug for themselves. It's nice that we're finally getting to the cross-platform part. I mean, finally, guys. Jeez. Do we have any information on how that's running? Because, like, multiplayer in general is not awful, but it's not perfect. Like, we've we've had games lost over the quality of the connection. We've Uh, had people stop playing over the quality of the connection. Yeah, and, like, in some cases that was someone's internet, but in other cases, once an established game started failing, there was no way to get it back. So I would be surprised if the multiplayer cross-platform was actually better than just the same platform multiplayer, which is not great. But maybe it is as good. I just I have no basis for evaluating that. And it would be useful information. Yeah, I don't see anything in these patch notes about, you know, stability updates or anything like that. So, yeah. So if you're listening to the show and you're on a Mac and you have at least one experience by trying to have a multiplayer game with someone on the PC, quote unquote, ha 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 ha, send us an email to the polycast at gmail.com and uh, tell us about it.
strategy guide that we've been covering over, I think, the past, what, two episodes? Yeah. It's focused on multiplayer, although the past couple of weeks we've had some questions about just how multiplayer centric some of the advice is. But anyway. Yeah, the threat starter uh, and the author of this work is Justifier. He lists the base benefits of everything, too. It's not just like a strategy yeah. right up. He puts the information about the each of the mechanics straight into the guide and then has discussion for most of it. I went through and just kind of tried to generally prioritize what the person was saying in terms of order priority, which would be encampments and then a potential coin toss between a commercial hub and a harbor, depending upon where you're situated on the map, you know, water or otherwise. Then a campus, then theater squares, then industrial zones. Uh, is it a coin toss for commercial hubs, harbors? I tend to go, if I can build the harbor, I tend to prefer to build the harbor because the land tiles are generally more useful for getting yield. Unless I've got like a bunch of deserts or tundra or something like that that I can put the commercial hub on. Or I've got a river that just is really snaky and would give me like plus five or plus six. I tend to prefer the harbor just so that I have an extra land tile on which to build a farm or a mine or whatever. He describes them as your first priority after getting defenses up. I mean, talks simply for the fact that you get trade route slots when you complete the tier one district building as well as gold per turn from adjacency bonuses. So when he says that they're the first priority, it's like, well, what is the first of the first priorities after defenses? I just extrapolated that as kind of like you did in a way, Jason, in terms of what do you have in terms of where your city is particularly located. And of course, that can also vary from city to city. If you've got a few cities, you might decide actually in this city, now that the defenses are up, I want a harbor here first, or I want a commercial hub here first. But I I think they can be very interchangeable. Yeah. I mean, they do have slightly different benefits. The harbor, I think, is actually going to give you some production from its buildings, whereas the commercial hub, I don't think, has any production. So the commercial hub is just going to be straight gold, whereas the harbor, you'll get a split of food, gold, and production. Given that commercial hubs are available earlier, plus the fact that gold is generally more versatile, I think that can make it stronger for a commercial hub, generally speaking. But it also, again, depends on what you've got on the map and, okay, what's my combat going to look like, number one? What's my production capacity otherwise within the game? And then in which case you may want to prioritize a harbor in at least some of your cities. It's interesting that particularly, I think, in a multiplayer respect, it's really interchangeable in a lot of cases, which makes the conversation interesting. Right, because with the harbor as well, you've got the lighthouse. You're talking about a building that's going to buff a bunch of tiles. So if you've got a lot of water resources, yeah, harbors are really good. Yeah, you're going to get plus one food and then an additional plus one food and all water tiles controlled by the city, along with plus one gold and housing, citizen slot, great admiral point per turn, 25% combat XP for all naval units trained in this city. And then, of course, the trade road capacity if the city doesn't already have a market. So if you can actually build a harbor, and it's going to have access to decent water tiles, then, yeah, that could be advantageous to get the harbor district up to then have the lighthouse as compared to the commercial hub and a market. Yeah, if you don't have the sea resources, though, then you're probably not going to be working those tiles anyway, in which case it's not going to be worth it. Go with the commercial hub. But if you've got three, four sea resources in your city's range, then, yeah, harbors are pretty good with a lighthouse. As described, harbors, yeah, really powerful for unlocking the power of your coastal city's potential, quote-unquote. But the question is, what power is there there to unlock? If it's, hey, I'm going to construct this lighthouse on this one coastal hex that I've got, uh, you may want to look at a commercial hub instead. Yeah, if you've got one water resource or just a couple of water tiles in your city, then yeah, don't bother with the harbor. 
making that choice to construct that as compared to another district, plus the fact, again, in the technology tree, you really have to go out of your way for it yep. in order to be able to get the Harbor District. Yeah, and it's also going to be a little map dependent. If you're playing online on Pangea, <laughs> harbors lose a lot of their value because naval units lose a lot of their value, especially since cities don't have to be built on the coast anymore. You can build them at one to three tiles inland. Capturing a city with a naval unit is much less common in Civ Six than it is in earlier Civ games. So it's going to be map dependent as well. Yeah, because all it needs to be is yep, one hex off the coast and it's like Oh, I'm sorry to even be able to bombard it. You're going to have to get to frigates. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. There's no medieval naval unit upgrades, and your galleys can't sail upriver to get to cities, which is a feature that I really wish the game had, but it doesn't, so eh. All right, we'll backtrack a little bit here to the beginning of districts. These little things called encampments. Those are handy in your cities that you have a lot of production, building a lot of units, but don't spam every city with them unless it's like on the border. Yeah, getting an encampment online is basically an extension of your city center, providing zone of control against applicable units, as well as giving you type bonuses. So plus two to four production in your cities when producing units. It talks about when you have one, three, six envoys in a militaristic city-state, if you are running city-states, as well as providing great general points, which are absolutely necessary when fighting wars. Great generals can easily turn the tide of any battle. Absolutely. And in addition to turning the tide, they can also help you snowball like nobody's business. And you want them early because once somebody starts popping them out, the cost goes up and it's really, really hard to catch up. Yeah. And fortunately, you can get them out early because they unlock at bronze working. <laughs> so ancient era, go, go, go. They align with early game goals of defense and offense. Technology required to build barracks aligns with your goals early in the game. We talked about great generals. The veterancy. Housing, of course, not only does the encampment building line give you production and enhance your units, but they also grant housing, so you'll have the capacity to grow your cities taller to unlock more district slots. Defense, we've covered that. Comparable to industrial zones, describes this as, well, obviously an encampment will not be as powerful as a plus four production adjacency industrial zone. They will easily compare to any industrial zone which is under that threshold, especially when you get to armories and military academies. The reason for this is you can use encampments and city-state type bonuses in conjunction with overflow strategies using civic cards to enhance the production output of the district. And even if you do not have city-states in the game, getting yourself an encampment and then giving yourself a barracks for the great general points, as well as the additional veterancy for the combat experience, and then as well as just having an encampment so that if your city has a wall, then you've got a bombard from the city, you can get a bombard from the encampment, plus you can place a unit inside the encampment as well, your unit. And if you've got that on the front line, like Mackie was saying, then that can just serve as another basis for, again, going on the offensive, where an encampment, I think a lot of times people think, regard this as a defense, but shoot, I mean, if you're right on the border with another sieve, or you turn around and capture a city that also has an encampment, then you can use that offensively because guess what? You take immediate control over the use of that encampment, you know, assuming that it has not been pillaged. So it's very, very powerful. Yep. And if you can build your encampment within two hexes of the other player's city center or their encampment, then, you know, you can bombard it directly without even having to have units. Or alternatively, put your catapult inside the encampment and bombard the city center and hey now all of a sudden the catapult actually works for what it's supposed to do yeah exactly if you can avoid engagement with an encampment then do it yes if you can but in a lot of situations especially against human players they're going to position them in places where you're probably not going to be able to avoid it easily 
and they'll yeah. probably try to use zone of control to try to funnel you towards it. That covers that. And we talked about the commercial hubs and the harbors. Okay, kind of middle of the road. Your campus, described as justifier, <laughs> justifying, priority dependent on the stage of the game and which great people appear. Usually you will want one to two campuses early, but more than that, only if you can get a plus three adjacency bonus for mountains, jungles, districts in your cities, as other districts take priority at the early stages of the game. Yeah, uh, in terms of priority dependent, in your capital, yes. Before an encampment and a multiplayer situation, Probably not. You may decide that hmm, this is a pretty nice adjacency bonus here. You may decide that you want that before a commercial hub or a harbor. Yeah. You've got a four or five. Yeah. I mean, if you're by yourself and you know that early on, okay, you're probably going to prioritize that sooner because I need to push on the science because by the time I engage in combat, I need to be in a best position possible to be feeling the best units possible. And the adjacency bonus thing is also a very large consideration. Something that I will often do when I'm deciding, okay, I've got an encampment. Now, do I want a commercial hub or do I want a campus right now? Part of that is to, and I often don't remember, so I'll say, okay, I'm going to choose a commercial hub. What are my available adjacency bonuses and where are they? Then that may that will often decide not only where I place that. It's like, oh, no, I don't want to put the commercial hub here. I want to put the campus there. And maybe I'm actually better building off the campus right now because that adjacency bonus is that much more than, say, a commercial hub. But it's also going to depend, like they said, on the stage of the game. And the stage of the game is not just what area you're in, what cities you currently have, but who's on your border or who's about to be in your border, who's already in your border. If you start near a mountain range in a jungle, I mean, you are easily talking about campuses generating plus four or plus five science from adjacency bonuses. Which can also give you, just like any district, oh, there's some error score that will help me towards staying out of a dark age. Stupid loyalty pressure. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Especially before you can start exerting loyalty pressure in those early wars, before you can adopt those military or those diplomatic policy slots. It's just kind of an added reason to decide, hmm, which am I going to go for here? Hey, this is plus three or more as compared to plus one or plus two. Yeah, let's go ahead with that. And if you can see from the map that your neighbors don't have very good options for campus adjacency bonuses and you figure they're probably not going to build them and you get a plus four or a plus five for your campus, you could easily out tech them and be fielding units that are a whole era ahead. And that's a really significant advantage. Get a head start on those great people for that particular district type as well. And it's just like, oh, look at this free library and plus one science in all of my libraries. Oh, look at all these Eureka bonuses I just got on these particular technologies. Thank you. That saved me a lot of turns. Yep. Plus, in a campus, a library, it's also a pretty cheap district building. I guess it's described that you can compound with city-state bonuses early to get a large amount of science. Even if you exclude city-states from the game, it's a cheap district building to give you a science boost. Short of city-state type bonuses, constructing a university, however... Uh, I'm not really certain how many you would have in a multiplayer game, but it also goes to question about as soon as you get like a commercial hub online after a market, how likely might it be that you construct a bank, let alone a stock exchange later on? It's really about which district am I going to get to give me that advantage in that moment because I had to choose that district over another type. And then also, what about that first building that I can go ahead and construct in that city, along with the adjacency bonus considerations? I mean, science stays important. If you're going into a game where the outcome is still in doubt at the time of universities, you probably will be building some of them. Certainly in your larger cities that probably already have a campus and also have decent production in order to be able to construct those universities. 
Well, yeah, you're not going to throw down new campuses unless the bonuses are enormous, but you probably should be growing your cities and you probably should be investing in things that make your district stronger as you progress down the tech trees that you continue to tech more quickly than your opponents, ideally, or at least match them Mm -hmm. if they're also playing well. A couple of districts left to go here. Theater squares, and there's number four, and again, listed ahead of industrial zones. Quote, you 100% want to grab theater squares if you're playing with a civilization who can get the plus 50% production boost towards producing them, Gorgo, Pericles, and Hojo, unquote. Well, that makes sense, just as with any other district uh, discount type. The strongest aspect of this district is almost no other players focus on great writers, artists, musicians, so if you can get those out, those great people points alone can easily lead in culture. That's true, not necessarily towards a cultural victory, but just progressing through the civic tree is advantageous, so I get that. Got to at least get enough culture to get to your governments. Yes. Although I guess in multiplayer, if you're just sticking with oligarchy, that's less important because you're probably going to get to oligarchy long before you build a theater square. And then lastly, industrial zones are super nice if you're able to compete in culture and science without investing into the prospective districts. They are in general better than a campus or a theater square's raw production from them can be utilized to build all other districts, yes, or simple units. However, they're extremely dependent on adjacent bonuses, just as the campus is. If you can get 3-plus production adjacent from mines or other districts, take this before a campus or theater square, as it will be more beneficial all game. Yeah, it really does come down to that adjacency bonus. It is important to note with the industrial hubs that because their adjacency bonus is dependent on improvements rather than the raw terrain, you actually have a little bit more control over that. You need the hills, but you have the hills present, then you are choosing whether or not to build mines on them. And hills are often clustered. So uh, if you have a place where an industrial hub would be good, it's going to be pretty good, probably. It's pretty hard to get more than plus two, though. Sometimes you'll see it. I see plus three to plus four sometimes, but they aren't going to get that in every city or even half of them, most likely. Very atypical for that kind of thing, unless you're playing on a map script that makes more hills. But yeah, very good when you get the flat bonus that's relatively large. Recorded for episode 306 with Dan Q, Makalua, me and team. Mega Bears fan, and Uber Marklar. Missed opportunity, inflicting negative error score by ISAU is the username. I'm not sure if that has a pronunciation or if it is just the letters. But the idea is basically they want the possibility to make your, your enemies lose error score. Some suggestions for things that would cause a loss of error score are losing a city for a medium hit, capital for big hit, getting beaten to a wonder, a small hit. I, what do you have, you have to like start the wonder and then if you don't get it, you get a hit. That's pretty crappy. Losing an emergency, spies killed, that kind of stuff. My problem with this is, with the exception of maybe a couple of them, like Spies KIA or something, although that's just nerfing Spies, <laughs> do they need to be nerfed? I don't know, but that's a way to nerf them. My problem is, like, especially with the cities lost, you're already in a bad situation, and this game already has problems with a nation that is running away, but not winning. Like, There's a huge period of time in all the recent Civ games, uh, like maybe all Civ games in general, where there's a decent amount of time to a huge amount of time where you are the number one civ but you won't win for a long time like you can spend hours still playing in real life with no real doubt on the outcome 
And a lot of multiplayer games are just called in that scenario if they're competitive for that reason. Like, everyone knows who's going to win, but it's still going to take over an hour to complete it. This does not help that. This does the opposite of help that. This creates runaways more readily by taking people out of the game completely. I mean, you're you're already pretty well out of the game if you're losing cities or losing your capital. It's pretty rare that a Civ that's losing cities like that is going to turn around and win. Double penalizing them beyond the fact that they lost their city, lost those turns of productivity, lost all this crap already. I don't think the game needs it. I, I think the game needs to either find a way to end games that are over or, or leave people actually competitive, one or I the could, other. I could maybe see a mechanic where having your cap captured like automatically triggers a dark age regardless of what your era score was the idea being that you've essentially been removed from the game now so okay, your yeah. your cities lose a bunch of loyalty and so now there's the possibility of all of your remaining cities like splitting off becoming independent and then joining the remaining civilizations okay, i could see yeah, something that would like help that end the game faster yeah, yeah. But I, yeah, I don't think you should be piling on penalties. I, I would say that if you're going to have negative era points, it should probably be more from things that you are doing poorly rather than things that other players do to you. Although I can't really think offhand of what something like that might be. Uh, Your worker micro sucks. Minus one, lol. No. <laughs> I mean, I was micro. thinking things like maybe you didn't research enough texts in the last era or something like that. But like that wouldn't really be a negative era score. That would be more like increasing the buffer to get the next era. But Not yeah, to mention, that has its own downsides. Like if you're falling behind on the tech curve, you're already at a penalty all to everybody else. Well, not technically, because <laughs> you might have been doing something where you were half researching text because you were like planning on getting the Eureka later. And then the era ticked over and you've got a bunch of half finished texts and there's no degradation mechanic. So maybe that would be something that would kind of fill that role of you shouldn't <laughs> be half researching text. I mean, I don't know if that would be uh... desirable. I don't think I would want it because I do that all the time. That's so niche. And like, I, I feel like people who are actually optimizing to that extent are rarely going to be significantly behind on the tech race. Right. Unless you just yeah. want to punish that action in general. Then why even offer it if it's not going to be? Yeah, like... I, I'm just saying that's the only thing that I could think of off the top of my head that would be something that would qualify for a user executed thing that would give you negative era score. The notion of losing your capital could trigger an internal emergency. Internal conflicts, even. Your emergency then becomes, better get your capital back within X number of turns. Oh, yeah. No, I, I like that. And then the failure condition could be you get a dark age. Yep. Nice. And so that way, really, the negative error score to me is the things that you don't get. Like, for example, getting beat to a wonder. You know what your negative error score is? It's not getting the positive error score for constructing the wonder. Right. Plus yeah. time lost investing in that versus other things. There's a significant opportunity cost to pursuing a wonder in the first place. And then if you get, don't get it, it, it's only the opportunity. <laughs> like you just lost out on a lot because now you have to go back to whatever you would have built ter many turns ago and try to build that anyway. Or maybe your next best thing now. But there's stuff you could have built that you would have had for sure that you would be getting, but you went for the wonder and didn't get it. That's already a pretty significant negative. It's not like you get fail gold to the extent where it was valuable, like in Civ 4. Yeah, or ne negative score, negative correlation to a positive one. You get the positive one when, hey, you know, your great general was victorious for in combat for the first time. Negative error score, you just lost your great general. Well, I'm pretty certain that you're already going to be behind... Because of that, because you're not going to be able to progress as quickly in the war, if at all anymore, all of those great person points that you generate in order to get that great general are lost. 
They suggested like a spy killed in action. Once again, that's the opportunity cost that's been lost. Well, I spent all of that time constructing that spy, and I spent all of those turns waiting them for do something, and they got killed in action. Welp, I guess I'm going to construct another spy, or I'm not going to construct another spy, or I should have chosen a different action for them to do, or they should have waited. I think that that is the negative without it also being a negative in front of you. That the idea of the error score is that you have done something well. It's being acknowledged. You're the first to something. It's the first time you've done this. You've repeated this, tying it also, say, into your dedication, for example, as you're getting error score because that's your civilization's focus for that era. Congratulations on constructing a new specialty district. Congratulations on constructing a science building within your campus district's You're going out and you're taking land units. You're going out and taking melee units because that was your dedication and you're getting the error score. The negatives will present itself, if not right away, then soon enough, and it does not need to be tied to the error score. The fact that I lost getting to a wonder doesn't take away the fact that I settled near this natural wonder. And you might say, oh, well, Dan, that's not the points that are being taken away. Strictly speaking, well, if the first points I got were, hey, congratulations on finding this natural wonder, you're the first in the world, plus three or plus four, whatever it happens to be, and then, hey, you just lost a unit killed in battle minus one, Mm, the fact that I lost a unit in battle does not take away from the fact that, hey, I just settled near this natural wonder. The correlation's not there. Now, what you could do is you could use this as a means of nerfing with something that's strong. Like, if you want to offer a government that sets you at negative one, two, or three, or whatever, but is stronger than the alternative options, so it puts you at risk, but then it's stronger. As an idea, could be functional. I would be hesitant to include it in the game, because I'd be surprised to see it balanced well, but that's something you could do, where you're making a choice. You know, do you want to set your, your bar higher, in effect, for the next eras to get this bonus? Are you willing to risk that? I did enjoy the suggestion there that's saying, hey, there could be negative error score if you get your settler captured. Man, the AI is screwed. <laughs> yeah. Zentrieve in the thread said, I rather they overflow the error points from one age to the next. Silly to see an oversupply of points to get a golden age to have basically little to get on the next age. Like during classical age, you would have so many triggers for error points, but by the time you're on medieval, you're scrambling for points and turn into dark age next. I don't know about that. I don't want to see perpetual golden ages without having to do anything because that kind of defeats the strategy of do I want to do this thing now that's going to give me era points or do I want to wait till next era so that I know that I'm not going to get a dark age. Yeah, I agree. Something to give it incentive would be nice, but not perma golden like aging. A, a growth bonus in your cities, production bonus, a gold bonus, some economic domestic benefit that scales based on how much the excess is. But I don't think it should just roll over to the next golden age. Perhaps there would be an opportunity to tie that into the number of dedications you get, which then you would need to scale it on. First off, the number of dedications that you could get in, say, other eras, like if you were in a heroic era, for example. And you'd probably also have to look at what each one of those individual ones are. But if it's, hey, you've got enough to be in a golden age, and if you're this X number over, like if you're 25% over or 50% over or something like that, then you can adopt another dedication to go along with that so that it's not a perpetual golden age, which I agree that that overflow would just allow that to happen, which would kind of defeat the point of, well, I don't worry about era score. What are you talking about? I'm always in a golden age. And quite frankly, I've seen enough people already saying that it's too easy to get into a golden age and stay in a golden age. 
I don't know about extra dedications because that kind of nerfs the heroic ages. It makes the dark ages less appealing because you don't get the extra perks from getting into the heroic age. But maybe they could have additional dedications that become available if you cross certain thresholds. So maybe if you just get just enough points for a golden age, maybe there's like three dedications available. And if you get plus five, then a fourth one becomes available and plus 10, a fifth one becomes available. Maybe something like that where there's better options available if you exceed the requirement. Bookender says, I wish it were like the NBA, okay, National Basketball Association, NBA draft, where it isn't an exact number of points, but a probability that changes or ages could change fluidly based on a timer. Your current age depends on era score you've accrued in the last 40 turds instead of being tied to rigid periods. All I know is that if it's like the NBA draft, we're going to deal with like five civilizations tanking and it'll be horrible. So That's every draft though, isn't it? They're changing it luckily, but it'll still be weird. By clue without. I'll start with the TLDR because then we can yeah. build from there. But government should give additional dedications and give bonuses to certain projects. Dedications, you get new age, get two additional dedications to choose from, tied to government types, so you can get some potential unique dedications. Uh, how good this would be really depends on what you put in the game. I don't know about should be tied to your government type necessarily, because it's also open to some interpretation, although he's, he's tried to do that here, like with a monarchy government and chivalry. I like the idea that there are additional dedications to choose from, because often whether you're getting to choose one because you're in a normal age or you're in a dark age or you get yourself into a heroic age, for example, and you've got three to choose from, for a lot of the game, it's the same dedications to choose from, and they're general enough that if you're having a similar play style, you're also choosing the same ones. So I'm all for additional choices, but I don't think they should necessarily be tied to your government type, but perhaps they should have specific government types in mind. So therefore, an advantage might be, hmm, maybe I will actually want to run Monarchy because, hey, look at this particular dedication that I can get during this particular era, and if I'm able to maintain differentiating between what's available in a dark and a normal and a golden age, and we already have that in the game, then maybe that's something to help fuel that government type. You can be that much of a better player and have that much better play if you recognize that it also ties into a government type. But I'd just be happy with more dedication choices. Or alternatively, you could set it up so that there is a unique dedication bonus for each government, and you get that automatically when you go into a golden age, and then you're choosing one of the other dedication bonuses on top of that. Hmm. That would be interesting. As long as, I don't know how you necessarily accomplish this, if let's say that you're an oligarchy and you've got yourself into a golden age, you might say, okay, well, now that you're in a golden age, you also get more combat on top of it, probably in oligarchy for the additional combat strength. So is it then an argument there you automatically get more combat strength because you chose more combat strength? Uh, well, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be the same bonus that you're getting from the government. It could be a different themed bonus. Would that be something that would be tied specifically to the government type, or you would get an automatic government bonus during that dedication, but it happened to be from, say, a random pool based on era, for example, or just in general? I was thinking more along the lines of there just being a specific set dedication bonus that is applied to each government type. 
but yeah, I mean, there could be pools of them available for you to choose from as well, where you pick one from your government type and then one regular generic one, and that could also work. So you were thinking more about like the legacy policy for a government type, but this would apply automatically for the duration of that particular era. Yeah, of the Golden Age. Yeah, something like that. As of course, compared to a government legacy, which you could be running necessarily regardless of what type of era you were in. Right. Yeah, it would only be during the Golden Age. The the question then becomes whether or not that would switch if you switched governments during the Golden Age. And of course, Golden Age, Heroic Age, interchangeable in this context? Yeah. Okay, because then there would be something that would be either Golden Age or Heroic Age to kind of tie into the Dark Age at a Normal Age thing. Okay. Started mentioning the uh, loyalty and war weariness. The idea basically is each government having a different effect on loyalty and war weariness. The examples are autocracy, monarchy, communism, give you a bump to your capital, loyalty bump to your capital if you, for some reason, need a loyalty bump in your capital, and cities with governors, classical republic, merchant republic, democracy, slightly smaller bump to all cities with certain districts, oligarchy, theocracy, fascism should give no loyalty boost, but reduce war wariness. You know, I'm perfectly fine with this as suggested because it can be another measure of whether or not you're going to choose a particular government type, whether you're actually going to stay in that government. I'm thinking with regards to the reduction of the war weariness. The thing is, it's expressed as a boost or a bump or a reduction in something that you would want, as opposed to this notion of what we have in some you know, policies like, oh, you get this, but then it also takes this away. Historically, when you consider the type of government and then trying to tie it to a specific in-game mechanism also makes sense. Yeah, there's going to be some argument over which bonuses should apply to which governments. For example, in this outline here, communism is giving you the bump to capital and cities with governors, whereas I kind of feel like that should maybe be more spread out, given the theme of communism. And maybe the democracy should be the boost to capitals and governors. But you know, you that's, make a case either way with that. Thing, yeah, it, that's you, be you're talking about having supervision and whatnot, which right. you could go either way. Yeah, like in a democracy, you get into questions of: is this like a decentralized democracy or a centralized democracy in terms of government power and the different tiers of government? Which, of course, is a level of detail that we wouldn't go into in the game itself. <laughs> no, not with our eight cities across our quote-unquote <laughs> empire. No, <laughs> <laughs> but each of our cities covers thousands upon thousands of. Kilometers and miles. Each of our cities is basically taking up an area on the map the size of Texas. Yeah, no joke. The idea is good. I generally approve of the idea of governments having more specialized effects. Because right now, the governments still have very much a kind of a feel of being a blank slate where you're just slotting in the policy cards and it's more about the policy cards than the actual government. Yeah, Uh, for sure. If you rearranged which governments had which policy slots available, they'd be totally different governments. The government-specific bonuses are less of a factor in my decision-making than the arrangement of the policy slots. So putting For the more most part, oligarchy, again, is an exception in that regard, just because of how strong the uh, unit strength damage scaling goes. Well, but and for oligarchy, everything else, it's like... Uh. And oligarchy also is just a very well-rounded government in general. So you can do pretty much whatever you want with it. Now, if you had a situation where autocracy was the government that gave you that plus four, would it be as good? Yeah, I'd still use it, because the plus four makes such a big difference when you're fighting. All right, what about this uh, project suggestion? Each government would also give a small bonus to running certain projects. For example, tier one governments, oligarchy might boost harbor encampment and uh, autocracy might boost engineer and campus. Classical public might boost commercial and theater projects. Uh, I guess it's all right. 
this would make certain governments all the stronger, though. Like uh, going oligarchy into great general is still pretty strong. And having a boosted project means that even if other people invest in the encampment, if they don't also go oligarchy, they're not going to get it. So, yeah, do we really want to stack more military bonuses onto oligarchy? But where else would you put it? <laughs> I don't know. It could go into autocracy. And then give oligarchy engineer a campus or just let it have all three. Uh, or... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> even the harbor is a bit of an eyebrow razor on oligarchy. <laughs> I think that's just a process of elimination kind of thing. Yeah, I had to put it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. As soon as you start tying a production to running certain projects for each government type, then why not just say, hey, congratulations, you're an oligarchy, so you get a production boost to all of your encampment buildings. So I don't think we should go down this road. And something of the same thing, except for that projects are more situational than the districts themselves. So boosting a project is less impactful than boosting the construction of the district. Very true. Okay. Building on non-voice system. Every time world moves to a new era, you get plus one envoy for every civ that has the same government type as you. Wouldn't that also mean that they all get plus one envoy? And uh, city-states aren't civs, so this would only be tied to other civs. I would like to see something with like how the city-states function, so that based on situation, you might have some extra incentive to do one government over another because of what the city-states are running. Yeah, this is interesting because it just gives everyone more envoys, or maybe not if everyone's running different governments. But <laughs> Yeah, I think you'd really also need a way to influence the uh, other players' governments, or the AI's governments, because right now I don't think there's any way to do that. So it's kind of just a crapshoot. Yeah, or maybe you don't want to be like the odd government out or something. That's what he's going for. Right, but again, without the player having the ability to influence the AI's government, it just feels kind of cheap to me that you're the one who has to bend over backwards to get the bonus for this because you can't do anything to change how the AI's play. Yeah, I mean, I would be inclined to agree with you more so if the AI and often the player didn't just kill the, the most of the city-states anyway. But uh, yeah, that's true. It is kind of annoying. Was it's contingent on what other people are doing. Now, this this could be interesting if instead of being automatic when you progress to a new era, if it were tied to like some kind of World Congress system where that was a resolution you could do. Hmm. So you select that resolution. You're the leader of the Congress or whatever. And, you know, you've got a lot of other civs that are the same government type as you. If we're going to have envoys that you can send to other civilizations, and we talked about that on episode 311. Rather than tying it to a specific era, if you're going to give something automatically, to me that would depend less on your era, but maybe your age. Like if you're in a golden age, perhaps you do get plus one envoy with every civilization that not even necessarily has the same government type as you, but that is friendly with you or, or something. Because you can make the argument, man, if you're in a golden age or a heroic age, that's something that other civilizations are going to pay attention to. And there are some civs that'll say, hey, can you stop gloating with your golden age over there? So they already know that. The game's already tracking that. So, go, oh, congratulations. You have increased your influence in the world. And part of that metric is the fact that you've now got plus one envoy with other governments that you have contact with. And they're also having, you know, friendly relations with you. They would actually receive that envoy. They would welcome that envoy because of your existing positive relation. Oh yeah, but boy. it's the AI, so they'd, they'd take the Envoy and then they'd turn around and complain about you gloating about being in a Golden Age, so... Well, they're going to do that anyway, so I might as well get something out of it. Yeah. <laughs> they're just going to gloat. The next suggestion makes you want to stay in oligarchy even longer than you would now. <laughs> Otherwise known as other, cost of government. Gold maintenance cost of cities and districts should go up as you move to higher tier governments. Increasing tiers might also increase how many uh, amenities you need across your empire. Whoa! Why? Whoa. Well, it would increase the pressure on a player to sustain their empire and mean more risk-benefit analysis when moving to advanced governments. In other words, 
stick with oligarchy. That's I, the stick I, with oligarchy suggestion. I would like to say that I wish that the higher tier governments were not so much of a strict upgrade over the older governments. Because like I said before, most of my decision making is going to be what policy cards are available. So I do wish the game had mechanics where you have more reasons to stick with older governments longer if they're useful. And oligarchy right now is pretty much the only one where you can pretty much make that argument. I just don't know if this is the right way to do it. I'm not sure I agree because players need more incentive to really invest into the culture tree. And this is one of those ways that really matters uh, in terms of your culture uh, output. It lets you get into more advanced governments, which are a significant upgrade. Similar to scientific upgrades, they are something you are designed to want. Uh, It's intentional that you want them. And I'm not so sure from a historical perspective that the lesser advanced governments actually would merit less maintenance or like more amenities required or any of that. That's more of a function of technological progression. Like, anything, I, don't see any, like, like, I don't see any bureaucratic advantage conferred by running a monarchy across a huge empire as opposed to a more advanced government. From a historical context, you'd almost think it would be the other way around, where the older governments should increase their maintenance costs the longer you have them in effect, because those simpler governments are going to become harder to sustain. That's why you had to invent newer governments. A simple democracy really starts to fall apart. Simple Greek democracy really starts to fall apart when you talk about extending that to multiple cities and whole nations and stuff like that, which is why republics were invented. This could also be very useful as a mechanic for balancing expansion rate early on. Yes, tie it to the size of your empire. Similar to like House of Four, if you just like expanded to 15 cities before you got to like currency, you're probably going to have a bad time unless you built the Great Abuse House or something. This could help out in that regard. Uh, it could really require you to push through your civic technologies in order to sustain additional cities and make them continue to be useful it would make you consider your rate basically yeah that that is a good point and i would like this kind of idea a lot more than just a hard cap the way that civ 5's happiness worked Uh, civ 5 was a joke i don't want to talk about their quote-unquote expansion model right so I, i would like this more than being like oh oligarchy can support four cities and monarchy can support six cities yeah let's not do that please right yeah please don't do that Paul versus wide is a cancer that needs to die, but it is useful to have some evaluation of when an additional city, a marginal additional city is useful to the player. That just doesn't exist right now. The answer is basically always in Civ 6. But at the same time, yeah, you definitely don't want to push too hard on something like that because you also want to give players reasons and pressures for expanding in the mid game. Yeah. Otherwise, everybody just builds their three or four cities and then is like, oh, well, I don't want extra maintenance costs. So screw building another city, especially since it's going to take time for that city to start paying for itself. So you want to be thinking like it's a mechanic that prevents a scenario where like if someone conquers somebody else early and you don't stop them right then and there, it's game over. Right. To me, that's kind of problematic in a competitive setting to have the game unfold like that. Like, say you're playing on a four-leaf clover, and one version conquers another person early on. You have to fight them right now, or you lose. There's no counterplay, other than just declaring on them and fighting them. Yeah, there should be some pressure on that person in that four-leaf clover who's gone ahead and successfully taken somebody else on their clover, that now it's not just a matter of the other players need to do something about it, but now that you've got this larger empire, you need to be able to consolidate that power there needs to be some kind of negative maybe we even tie it partially into not necessarily needing more amenities but there's a greater amenity hit until you do 
this in the game to try to consolidate your power. As a measure of that could be, okay, you need to have a unit garrison in all your cities for X number of turns, just just as an example, that there's something that the conqueror has to do after they take that, rather than say, well, I've gone ahead, I was able to conquer earlier, I'm just going to sit back and wait for the other civilizations or one of the other civilizations to come to me, because they have to do something. You should have to do something as well, while at the same time not having it so that it's penalizing you for being successful in the first place. Not talking about a uh, rubber banding mechanic, but at the same time not just allowing it to be that, well... I had early success, so therefore I also am now all but guaranteed future success. I don't have to think anymore about my larger empire. I've got my larger empire, away I go. I'm twice as strong as I was before because I got twice as much stuff. Yeah, the idea is to have the advantage be conferred, but not have it so automatic or oppressive as a result. And I think back to Civilization Four and there was the building that you had to construct that acted as a second palace. Was that called a Forbidden Palace? It was called Forbidden Palace, although you rarely built it in good play, and courthouses were situational. What really made Sephortech was your expansion was tied to your technology rate very directly via maintenance. You wanted to expand at a rate where you could still continue to detect the things that let you support more cities and grow. And you were balancing those two against each other. Right. You actually had an explicit slider in that case as well. Yeah. Which is something that I do kind of miss. I wish Civ 5 and Civ 6 had things like you know tax rate sliders and things like that, where you actually had more direct control over your economy rather than just having to shuffle population around. Well, I mean, ultimately, your control is pretty similar based on investments. The problem with the newer games is that they don't accomplish much more than the slider accomplished, but they actually made it more of a hassle to do it, you know, like to interact with it. It's just the wrong direction to go. Another idea that I've had in the past that re- kind of relates to this is the idea of actually separating the idea of colonies from core cities, where if you are conquering another empire, it's considered a colony and the cities operate differently than your core cities and are you know potentially harder to maintain. As long as there would be an option for you to have it so that colony over time through very specific steps could become, if you wanted it to, a main city. Yeah. Yeah. Then that's fine. You got that short-term solution of, guess what? I snowballed. I'm going to continue to snowball unless everybody else goes out against me and sets aside their differences, while at the same time not rubber banding everybody else. Right. One of the things that I've proposed on one of my blog posts a long time ago was the idea that your core city should only be the cities that are like contiguously connected to your capital via cultural borders. So if you settle a city or you conquer a city that's not actually connected to the rest of your empire, it's considered a colony and is managed differently than other cities. So then if your empire, either your borders grow or you put more cities in the intervening space such that it's now connected to your empire, then it changes status and becomes a core city. That's going to have some weird effects on some map scripts, though. Yeah, it could. Some map scripts, you're going to be stuck with, like, two core cities no matter what forever. Islands. (laughs) Yeah. That's yet another thing that could really break the game with a spawning position perspective. Because if you're playing Fractal and one person's on their own little island that's just long enough that you're not going to be able to contiguously connect it, then uh, that one person is stuck with colonies forever no matter what, whereas nobody else is. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, you know, there's always going to be weird edge cases with the the map doing weird things to the the games played, especially when you're talking about the maps like Fractal that are so... Yeah, but you don't have to introduce a mechanic that puts you at risk of these edge cases. Like There's no such thing now because all the cities are the same. And you could implement a mechanic where that stays true. Your outcome is not contingent on a procedurally generated map. Yeah. 
And then lastly, in part four, something about government bonuses, legacy cards, government plaza buildings. He thinks it would be more consistent if main government buildings, such as for Alakuriki, there's a card you could use when you had that government and then convert it into a legacy card once you got the government plaza building. This would stop players stacking a government bonus with a legacy card from that government. Basically, no double stacking Alakuriki bonuses is what he's getting at. And then he also thinks the bonus from the government plaza building should be partly put into a card. You only have access if you have the relevant building. That would make those bonuses more consistent with governments in general and add another strategic consideration. Hmm. I might consider this if we start looking at all of the government types and the number of cards each confer. Yeah, you would need more cards yeah. if you're going to put all these bonuses in cards. I suppose one thing they could do is have some of the government bonuses and stuff like that be diplomatic cards so that even if city-states are disabled, you've got something to put in those diplomatic slots. You could just have a legacy slot anyway, too, like if we're going to do this. Yeah, that would be another way to do it. Or you, you wouldn't even have to call it a, you could say like a tradition slot or something. Like This is just like your Civs history and just put something like this there. It's the only thing you're allowed to put there is stuff from previous governments. Or do something where, like, you make it permanent, and then you just unlock a new one with each new government. So it's kind of like the Good, uh, yeah. when Civ Six released, they had the government legacies, where you, the longer you were in the government, the power got stronger. Yeah. And then that power persisted even after you switched governments. So kind of the same idea, where you've got some power that is a legacy that is permanent for the rest of the game, but it's based on a card that you get to choose instead of strictly coming from the government type that you had selected. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. A thank you to lead patron Candace Albinus and all other supporters of the show through this measure. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call, Call in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44-121-288-7659. That's 44-121-288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. Hey, Mackie, welcome to the 300 episode of Polycast Club with me. What? I've got to be quite a ways behind still. This is your 219th episode. Jesus. Still a lot. (laughs) Jason, this is only your 14th episode. What it gives, man. <laughs> wow, Dan. <laughs> you know what? While you're gone, I'll just record my own polycast every day until you come back. How's that? <laughs> Blackjack? Thank you for listening to the 314th episode of Polycast. I've been joined by fellow regular co-hosts, Jason. Uh, oh, crap. I didn't think of anything. Uh, something, something witty. Phil. Now mixing gorilla and gorilla tactics. And Stephanie. Well, all right, Mr. Cherry, what are you doing here? <laughs> For those who don't know, on the 20th of July, I got married. Yay! 
Yeah, I, you know, I'm off the market now. Obligatory reference. Sorry, Mackie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Not sorry. Uh, and uh, I was had the opportunity to meet some polycasters slash turncasters in person. Imagine past regular co-host on the show. This is the second time I met him in person and his significant other. Warning you too, and his significant other, Canis Albinus, Ober Marklar, New Earth Relic, and another past regular co-host on the show, QNL, and her significant other. But no, don't expect my wife to be on this show anytime soon. It's not really her thing. <laughs> and uh, I'm still allowed to play Tiv, so you know what? That's great. For now. <laughs> for, for now. Yeah. Record date? July 28th, 2018. Civilization 4, 5, and Beyond Earth Sound Clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.